classic angle for defense is to say, they're not telling you the whole story. There's more behind this curtain that I'm going to show you now. When you get to act two of this trial, there's going to be quite a few things that they're not going to tell you. So you see what I'm, that's creating a whole bunch of mystique, intrigue, like what's behind that curtain? What, what's he going to say? What is it? I, oh, I want to know more. I want to be in the know, you know? So if you give them that angle, which, which plaintiffs can't really do, it's as if to say like there's secrets. And then, like I said before, you have the luxury really as defense to drill down on just one or two micro things in their case and just knock them apart. And you don't have to do so much of this sort of emotional storytelling. That was David Mann, and this is May the Record Reflect. Welcome back to episode 33 of the podcast. I'm your host, Marcy Mangan, and this month, my guest is someone the writer in me is especially excited to chat with. David Mann is a communication and presentation specialist described by the Star Tribune as a consummate storyteller. In fact, in one of his biggest cases yet, he served as the story and presentation specialist to lead counsel in the case of In Re Petrobras securities litigation, the fifth largest securities class action settlement ever achieved in the United States, to the tune of $2.95 billion, billion with a B, dollars. Now, despite whatever you might think about storytelling, it's not just for jury trials. It applies to bench trials, too, as well as hearings and motions. David says that storytelling is about making the legal case story compelling and persuasive, no matter who your fact finder is. So let's get to it. Here's our interview. So if you think about it, every story that we hear or we read, whether it's in a book or a TV show or a movie, presents a kind of opening statement, so to speak, which is meant to hook us right at the get-go so that we're like, ah, tell me more. I know, David Mann, that you have worked with legal teams on developing the story of their client's case to help them quickly bring the jurors to that tell-me-more stage. And that is what you're here to talk to me about today. But I actually want to start with the opposite of that. What makes a boring opening statement so boring? Well, many things make it boring, basically not telling a story. So what tends to happen often is that lawyers will get into a mindset of, I need to tell the jury a lot of information, because ultimately they do. But they start right out telling them information and not wrapping it in a story form. In a nutshell, that's what causes an opening statement to be boring. And then from there, there's a million details as to the forms of boring that you get into. So then the flip side is that what makes a compelling opening statement compelling is tell a story. Yeah. And by that, we'll get into this here. But um, right at the outset, I think I would say to tell a story means many, many, many things. And I get into a lot of the with when I work with lawyers onto the, into the nuances of what a story even is because it's not as simple as just like oh we all know what a story is there's lots of things that constitute what a story is and um when a lawyer is ending up with sort of a boring opening statement yeah it's maybe not a story but 
other components of that are that it's too complicated. It's not simple enough. The language is too uh, elevated. The references are too kind of chaotic and discombobulated. All of those things build to it feeling boring or overwhelming. Yeah, uh, it's already too much for the audience to comprehend and deal with, and they check out right from the get-go. Right, yeah. I mean, the, the craft of telling a story is it depends entirely on considering the audience, at least in my opinion. You must always consider the audience, how they are hearing it, and what they're, what you, the, to the best of your ability, what you can perceive or expect their, the pace of understanding that they're at. How, how quickly can they understand what you're talking about? And generally, the answer is not as quick as you think. And so they need to have it rolled out to them kind of gradually so that they can stay up with it. Now, a good storyteller who's writing a novel or putting together a movie or, you know, a play, they're always, I mean, I come from theater. We're always considering the audience front and center all the way through the creation of that piece. We're thinking audience, 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 audience. And often with professional presentations, which would be, which would include opening statements, but also things outside of court, often that is not really front and center. It's here's what I need to say, and I want to say this, and I need to make sure to say that, and et cetera, et cetera, without really considering the who is receiving it and what sort of pace they're at and what sensibilities they're at, what vernacular they can handle, et cetera, down the line. Yeah. The first question you should always ask in any sort of communication is, who is my audience and what do they need to know? Yeah. When you do work with clients, I know that you teach a number of different techniques for helping them brainstorm and develop the story of their client's case. And then you further work with them on refining how to actually tell that story. And so today we want to focus on just one of those things, and that's developing the plot, so to speak, of your client's story. And in one of your courses that's coming up this fall, you talk about a book by Christopher Booker, who's a very well-named gentleman, called The Seven Basic Plots, Why We Tell Stories. Um, by way of background, he was an English journalist, and he took a Jungian-informed look at these sort of archetypal plots that predominate the stories that we humans tell and have told for since time immemorial. Different characters, different details, but they're all kind of the same basic set of plots over and over. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how Christopher Booker's work has informed your own work. Well, I would say that it's Christopher Booker and many others that, have to, that, that are uh, thinking about how, it, how stories are most um, hardwired to our primal instincts. So Christopher Booker has these seven types of plots, uh, which are the overcoming the monster, rags to riches, the quest, voyage and return, comedy, tragedy, and rebirth. Um, in So the, he's talking about complex story construction on the level of mythology or our modern mythology, which would be basically movies. And he's talking about how different ways that that an, an audience gets engaged with a character to go through a uh, maybe a completely different type of of uh, series of events, but still come away that the audience feels connected to that character. 
So in one of them, it might be like rags to riches. They go from being very poor to very rich or maybe poor to rich and back. Um, one of them uh, overcoming the monster is there is a, a villain to be vanquished. I mean, this is probably the most common story uh, construct that we are familiar with. Beat the enemy. So that's like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, that kind of thing. Well, the, that's the thing is that he, he very much kind of silos all these types of um story plot lines into crisp little categories but in reality it really isn't like that i mean it's like there there's uh the lord of the rings would be a quest and an overcoming the monster in the same story i mean you know they're they mix together and blend and that's how you get really interesting rich storytelling but the difference, and this is what I like to point out, this is the fundamental difference between a legal case story told to, say, a jury versus narrative fiction that we watch in, in movies or read in books. The fundamental difference is that the narrative fiction that we're used to watching in movies is a finished story. It has a beginning, middle, and end. The credits roll at the end. You walk away. That story is complete. In a legal case story, it isn't complete because the jury is the end of the story. The story has not been completed yet. They will complete the story. So eventually, down the years down the road, the story will be told. These people did these things, and then it went to trial, and this is what the jury gave as the verdict. And that story will now be told by other people in the future. You see what I'm saying? So when you are, when you are um, constructing a case story, it's stories within stories. So you may be talking about this person who your client was wronged by the actions of the other side, and then you will tell that story. But then this, the, the story that we're actually currently working on here is how are we going to make the outcome of this story be a positive, forward-moving, justified thing. And that's, uh, that's the, the difference. Well, I would love to hear about some of the challenging cases that you've worked on with your clients. Can we talk about those ideas and how you help them work through them? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I'm most interested in right now when, when I work with clients is how to orient the characters in your story, the kind of default uh, automatic thing that we think of as storytelling is I'm going to tell you about my character. My character is a good guy and my character fights for what is right. And my character, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, that's what we're used to seeing in the movies. Identify with the, the hero and then follow mm -hmm. the hero, hero along his or her journey. So that's the classics, you know, I mean, that's Star Wars. That's the Hunger Games. That's, I mean, I usually show a slide in my, in my presentation on this. You have the Wizard of Oz. You have the Handmaid's Tale, which is still an ongoing story, a very dark one. But it's usually uh, centered around one character or possibly two or three, like maybe Stranger Things might be something where you have like, okay, these four whatever kids, and they're all fighting, and you're, you're supposed to be like on their side. So that's what we think of as like, the classic storytelling endeavor. That's what you do. But I'm starting to be very curious and interested in essentially the mirror image of that, 
where you would, instead of getting the jury to identify with your character, you actually get them to be against the other character. So you don't really tell them. I'm starting to do this with the cases that I'm working on. You don't actually tell them that much about your character at the outset. You tell them all of the wrongdoing things that the other side did. So they get to be like unified in opposition to this bad stuff that this other person did. Okay. And it's very counterintuitive, but it absolutely works. And the, the, because why, (laughs) how do we know this? Look at the political landscape. It is much easier to unify people against something than it is to unify them for something. That's a brilliant observation. That's it, a fascinating idea, using it in legal cases in that way. Yeah, I was talking with a friend of mine who's a very successful um, lawyer, litigation attorney here in Minneapolis. And the way he described it to me, and I think this is the simplest way to describe it, is, okay, say that you have, here's a very quick sketch of a, 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 a kind of an archetypal case story. We'll just call everybody by generic name. So John Smith is a good guy. Uh, he was working a little bit late one night, and uh, he felt really bad that he had not been able to come home for dinner at the right time. And so he felt, you know, maybe I'll, I'll stop and I'll pick up some dinner so that I can bring that home to my wife. And um, he got the dinner, and then he drove along a little ways. And then he came and he saw a flower shop and said, you know what, I'm going to actually get, stop in there and pick up her some flowers, too. And, you know, he was, it was snowing a little bit outside and, and uh, the road was just a little bit slippery. So he was being pretty careful and he pulled up to a stoplight and waited for it to turn green. And when he pulled into the intersection, he was blindsided by the defendant who was drunk. Okay. So that's the classic way to tell that story. See how I'm starting to getting, getting you to empathize with my character, but it doesn't work (laughs) because Mm -hmm. here's the thing. Now you're able to say, well, maybe he, if he had left work on time, that wouldn't have happened. Maybe if he hadn't stopped for the dinner, maybe if he hadn't stopped for the flowers, maybe if he'd been just a little more careful in the slippery roads, you know what I mean? You can knock down all the things that I said. Okay. And I told you, yeah, you flip it and you go, um, uh, let's call this guy uh, Darren Nelson. <laughs> Darren Nelson, the defendant in this case, decided that he wasn't going to go home after work and he was going to stop in a bar and have a couple of drinks. He had a couple of drinks and, uh, you know, he got in his car and drove another six blocks and he thought, you know what, what I'm going to stop in another bar. And in that bar, he had a couple of shots with some friends that he met there. Now he's had six drinks and he's on the road. He's had six drinks in 90 minutes and he's on the road and he's driving along and it's snowy because he's swerving all over the place. And he comes to an intersection and he can't really, it's blurry with the snow and his eyes are a little blurry and he just pulls out full speed into the intersection and slams into my client, the plaintiff, who is just returning home after work. That's a real shift. In fact, it feels like um, it could happen to anybody. Yeah, because I've told you nothing about my guy, except he there he was just doing his thing. And that when John, my, my friend, uh, who's a lawyer, ran me through that exercise, he didn't precede it like I just did with, here's the point I'm making. <laughs> he just started telling me this thing. and was like, so how do you feel after the first telling? How do you feel about this driver? And I, I started to do the thing like, well, I, geez, I mean, maybe if he had left at the right time, I started to do that very stuff organically. 
because juries are sitting there being asked to make, uh, you know, make assessments of stuff. They're supposed to have a little bit of doubt on either side. They're supposed to, well, okay, I want to hear the other side of this. So if you give them too much to work with, they actually might begin to work against you. Now, I say this all, this is a very simplistic um, kind of illustration of this, but I did actually work on a case recently that was a, um, uh, tragically, a nine-year-old girl died in because of the, our side was saying, because of the wrongdoing, the ineptitude, really, of the hospital staff in this critical, like, 45-minute period. Hmm. We didn't mention that nine-year-old, anything about that nine-year-old girl for something like 18 minutes of that opening. We, we mentioned that she was nine and that she was, a, you know, of course, she is the focus of this case. We didn't mention her or her parents at all for like three quarters of this thing. And, and why? Because we needed them to focus on the actions of that hospital. We didn't need them to care really about the girl, that was not really the point. It was more the point of like, these actions resulted in a death of an innocent person. And it worked great. I mean, it was, it was like I say, it's counterintuitive. But what the reason I'm bringing this up is I think that this is more kind of relevant to legal storytelling. And it's essentially the flip version of what you would do in a movie. You generally are not going to say like, let's introduce the antagonist first. Unless you, what you're doing is like a Richard III thing, which is Shakespeare's famous play about the awful king, Richard III. Y wow. Your, your yeah. bad acting person, your, your ugly characteristic person is your protagonist. <laughs> you see what I mean? And, and that, that's a different thing then. Or you do an even wilder thing like Breaking Bad did where they introduce you to a sympathetic character in seasons like one, two, and part of three, who then becomes a very unsympathetic character by seasons three, four, and five, you know? Yeah. And that's sort of the um, advanced version. Well, it's interesting that you mention uh, a guy like Walter White, because yeah. not all clients are that easy to defend. Um, lawyers are here, and somebody's got to fulfill every defendant's uh, constitutional right to counsel, right? And not right. all of those defendants are heroic. Maybe in their own personal opinion or as a defense mechanism, they do think that they are heroic, but they've still done something heinous. So is there some way that you can craft your story for a difficult or unsympathetic client? Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, again, you generally want to invert the storytelling so you're not so you're focusing on the other side especially in a case like that um you're not going to get somebody to love jeffrey dahmer you're not going to be like yes but he had a hard childhood and let's think about how you know what he was really trying for in life like everyone's going to be like no no absolutely not so you have to kind of own the fact that you've got someone with very negative characteristics but then if you're on defense side, you tell the story of what the other side is trying to um, is trying to charge. I mean, what they're trying to say happened and then own the things that you have to own and then zero in on the one or two things they're never going to be able to prove. 
and then just tell those stories and just lean really hard into one or two elements. And that's how you do that. You have to sort of get the the trick of that is that you have to get this the jury to be uh to to um trust you as the storyteller. You they have to trust that you are a credible person. And if you start trying to say, please no, care about this serial killer, they're gonna be like, No, 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 no. You you're just a lawyer trying to get away with right. something. You know? Right. But I've never worked on a case with a serial killer. <laughs> what I <laughs> what I have worked on, which is which is not that at all, is I have in very recently, very recently, one of them was just last month, worked on the defense side in a sexual assault charge. And that is very tricky territory because this is why, and this is why it is so central to storytelling. In a sexual assault case, no one except those two people actually knows what happened. So there's there's no camera. I mean, I guess you could have one with cameras or tapes or something, but let's say there isn't. The classic is like one of them that I worked on last fall was they were really drunk. They got in a car together. And then four hours later, she was found, you know, drunk and asleep by the cops. And then she says these things happen. Okay. So the, the missing information is just in this period where they were in the car. So it's what she said and what he said. And there is no way around that. So it must be that you get the jury to imagine these characters and imagine what happened as three-dimensionally as possible from your angle so that they feel that the story you're telling them is the authentic one. And then the other side maybe doesn't tell as good a story about what happened in that invisible period. And then it's hard for the jury to imagine, and then it becomes less easy to identify with, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so that's one thing about that is getting them to imagine missing information as much as you can with a visual image in their mind, not just a list of facts, but paint a picture so they can see it happening with concrete details they know about already, a car or so the way something smells or the way it looks. And uh, that's aspects of storytelling there. Yeah, it's um, it's really t- tricky territory for defense counsel, especially after the Me Too movement. But as we all know, and like I said before, those defendants are entitled to effective legal counsel, if only to ensure that the punishment fits the crime and is not disproportionate or veers into the cruel and unusual territory, which, you know, of course, is another constitutional protection, just like the right to counsel. But um, let's put hot potatoes aside for right now. Are there any other cases that you can talk about that bring to life these storytelling concepts that we've been talking about? Here's, here's an example that I use in my class, okay? So this is a, a, actually a fictional case, but it's very close to reality. So this is an employment law case. And this employment law case is so generically, just not either side, just the generic facts of this are that this employee, Sharon Donaldson, um, was fired suddenly. She is claiming that it was gender discrimination. Okay. They are saying she just wasn't doing her job right. Okay. So that's kind of a classic employment law case. Now I'm on Sharon Donaldson's side on this and I don't tell a story. It might sound like this. 
Sharon Donaldson was a good employee. She did everything right. But then they hired Richard Jackson, the regional manager, and suddenly one day he fires her. We're going to show you over the course of this case that that firing was due to gender discrimination. So that's a classic, that's a, basically how a lot of opening statements kind of begin. It's just, here is what happened, and now we're going to prove it. So what that does is force a jury to go into a very logical, sequential, kind of like critical thinking mind that they're not comfortable in, because that's not where they're living all the time. So a storytelling version of this same exact thing I just said would be Sharon Donaldson believed in Empire Car Rental. This is a company that she believed in and had worked for so for so many years because she knew that the success of that company would also mean the success of her own career. She sacrificed and she worked countless hours. She got great performance reviews and she was really well liked by her by her colleagues. Then Empire hires a regional manager named Richard Jackson. Richard Jackson starts giving her bad performance reviews. He starts promoting male employees before her, even though they had worked there less time. One day he called her in to his office, sat her down, and said that she was terminated. And Sharon was flabbergasted and left without saying a word. Or something like that. I'm actually giving you story details and characters, and most importantly, giving you Sharon Donaldson's quest, giving her a noble pursuit before saying that it was interrupted by the actions of this case. If I just say, hey, she was terminated and it's gender discrimination, that's just like taking the climactic moment of the movie. Like, it, can you imagine seeing like, what's a, what's a movie with a famous climactic moment? I don't, I don't know. Uh, how about when um, Frodo throws the ring into the, the lake of fire? Yeah, there you go. And just, and have that be the whole movie. <laughs> like there's no background, there's no lead up. It's just like that scene. Yeah. Who cares? You'd go, I don't care. Who is this and what's going on? You know, and this is often what happens with legal storytelling is we're just so immersed in the details of the wrongdoing. In other words, the climactic, the conflict moment that we forget about uh, building context around it so that climactic moment moment means something. And the way to make it mean something is to make it mean something to a particular human being, like Sharon Donaldson in this case. She wanted to do well, but the spoiler came in, this regional manager, and interrupted her journey to try to do something well. And we relate to that. See what I mean? So it kind of sounds like using storytelling is a way to almost create a little bit of distance between yourself and your usual way of thinking and the facts and details and all of that that kind of bog you down and make you start out the case in the wrong direction. Yeah, it, it is. But I always hesitate to say it's you know anything that may imply getting away from the facts. Because I made these mistakes early when I started doing this is to say, it's not about the facts, it's about the story. And the lawyers would say, no, it's a legal case. It's about the facts. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Of course. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't mean it's not about the facts. It's about not trying to use just facts in list form as the persuasive tool only. Because nobody anywhere thinks in lists of facts. 
what we do is we think in story narrative all the time, everything we do. We're just not always consciously aware of it. But people don't really understand what you're talking about if you just give them lists of facts. Right. And if you get into complicated cases like medical malpractice, securities fraud, I've done many medical malpractice and personal injury. I've done a couple of security fraud, securities fraud things where the jury does need to understand a whole bunch of complicated technical information or they're never going to be able to get through the case, right? The trick is how do you weave that technical information into a narrative so that they can actually track it, uh, care about it, and most basically just remember it? And that's the game. So you mentioned that there are uh, clients who are difficult to defend because they've done something heinous. Are there important differences between telling the story of the defendant versus telling the story of the plaintiff? Yeah, I would say that there's quite a few differences. First of all, kind of really fundamentally, is that when you're the plaintiff, you're going first. So you are introducing the story to the jury for the first time. They've not heard another version. They just, they're getting the information for the first time from you. So you have a real advantage to spin the tale in your direction. And, and you probably, in most kind of individual plaintiff cases, it's, even what I said just a few minutes ago, notwithstanding about like maybe hold off on trying to get them to empathize with your client. In many cases, you do want to do that at some point, maybe not right out of the gate, get them to be against the other before you get them into yours. But you do want to say, hey, let's, let's care about this, this uh, individual plaintiff. And it's usually pretty simple to do when you are an individual plaintiff, especially in something where there's an obvious injury or wrongdoing. When it's defense, the kind of classic angle for defense is to say, they're not telling you the whole story. There's more behind this curtain that I'm going to show you now. When you get to act two of this trial, there's going to be quite a few things that they're not going to tell you. So you see what I'm, that's creating a whole bunch of mystique intrigue like what's behind that curtain what what's he going to say what is it i oh i want to know more i want to be in the know you know so if you give them that angle which which plaintiffs can't really do it's as if to say like there's secrets and then like i said before you have the luxury really as defense to drill down on just one or two micro things in their case and just knock them apart and you don't have to do so much of this sort of emotional storytelling well, I think that is a lot to think about, or maybe um, rethink is actually the better term when it comes to how to tell the story of your client's case. That idea of putting opposing counsel's client first instead of your own when you tell that story, that is a, that is a huge shift. And um, not to be awkward, but speaking of shifts, I have another, and I want to shift gears to get your advice on how to make the actual act of writing come a little bit easier, because that still can be difficult just to get started. Do you have any tips about things that you do as a writer, David, that would help listeners have an easier time starting to write, which of course is the precursor to storytelling? Well, I would say uh, the thing that relates the most to what we're talking about here is just free writing. So in other words, not having an agenda 
not having a goal and just opening up a blank page and just writing whatever you want off the top of your head. And it can be mumbo jumbo. It can be, it's like uh, Julia Cameron's famous, The Artist's Way, um, talks about morning pages in this very way, like every single day, write three pages of whatever you want. And that is the single most useful thing there is. So sometimes it can be, um, I feel this and I feel that and I feel that, you know, it can be that stuff. But sometimes I've found that the most useful way, in fact, often, because I, I can have a tendency to go into that too quickly. And then there's really like, there's a point where you're like, I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't have nothing to feel. What am I even writing about? <laughs> you know, um, it can be useful to say, what is in this room? And just start writing about what you observe outside of yourself. That's just, oh, I never really looked at that bookcase before. Um, I see six books, two are orange, you know, like really observational stuff. And that will start to get your mind to go into things that are, uh, there's always threads to, to follow. And I say this as a, in, in the context of our, our legal storytelling conversation here to say, one of the best things that, that a legal team can do, and believe me, it's totally overlooked, is to start the, the whole proceedings of a case, even prior to discovery, by just brainstorming what we hope we can tell as a story. Like, no holds barred. What if we just could say anything we want? What would we say? How would we tell this story? Just like paint it on a broad canvas. And it can really open. It's just like the morning page is just like the flushing out. It can really open your mind up. 75% of that stuff might be useless, but there's a few gems that you never would have thought of any other way. And that can work really well. Yeah. I, first of all, I'll get back to this, but I do love what you said about morning pages because I've had that morning practice uh, myself for about seven years. Um, brainstorming where you just come up with every single idea that comes into your head. Like you said, 75% may not be useful. 25% is. But as you go through this long process and revisit those notes months afterwards, sometimes the context has changed and you find inspiration in that 75% that leads you into the right direction too. So very, very useful. But um, morning pages, I I think of it as taking out the trash every morning. I never know what's going to be in my head in the morning. Sometimes it's emotional stuff. Sometimes I'm thinking about, um, I'm trying to puzzle something out at work. Absolutely. Or I'm making lists. I'm preparing for a, a trip. And my morning pages are whatever I make them out to be. But they have helped me as a writer by shutting down that internal editor who sits in your ear and tells you you stink and is copy editing you the whole time and telling you that you don't know what you're doing. And instead, you just keep showing up for yourself over and over and over every single morning. And you're like, I'm going to write these three pages no matter what. It, they're for me. Nobody sees them. You learn how to, to write very quickly and yes. reflexively because you are out of your own way. Yeah, that's exactly what it's for. And I think that because legal storytelling and particularly opening statements, have so many tight constraints on what you can and can't say. It's very easy to get into that editing mode way too early. 
And I do this with lawyers all when I work with them on openings all the time. They're like, oh, well, you can't say that. Well, we better not say that. And I go, why does it matter? We are six weeks from trial. <laughs> like, just put it on the paper. Yeah. We'll work out the nuances of what of the all that before we go to trial. But there's gonna be 19 revisions before we go to trial. So we're gonna, you know, if we edit ourselves now, we're never gonna get there. Right. And I'll I'll add one more thing about this that I I wanted to say this a few minutes ago, which is that we're talking about jury trials. Okay. We're talking about like classic litigation in front of juries. More and more and more often I'm working with lawyers who never do that because it's so seldom that things actually get to the jury. So applying all this storytelling stuff to a bench trial or just a hearing or a motion or something, there's a lot of the same components, but this thing we're talking about right now is a critical piece. You have to be able, because a judge does not want to have a movie, okay? The judge doesn't want sympathetic characters that you feel things for and con the judges don't want any of that stuff. They expressly are like, please do not just sit here and storytell, you know? <laughs> However, you have to get a story across to them because that judge is a human being and still responds to myth, story, character, and all the same. So doing this step that we're talking about now of brainstorming in long form, what would the story be if it was just a campfire? What would the story be if we were just sitting around talking over coffee or hanging out? What story would I tell there? And then take that and squash it down to what a judge can stand. And then you might have a really compelling thing for a bench trial. You, you've got to remember that um, when you see something that's on the written page, you're not seeing somebody's first draft. You kind of assume. I think we all assume that we are, but we're not. We're seeing... We're seeing the final version that's been brainstormed and picked apart and edited, not just by the writer, but also layers of editors. And when you really stop, stop and think about that, it can help you get out of your own way. Yeah, it's something that's presented to the public, especially for money. I mean, I've done this myself many times as a performer. It's so worked over so many millions of times. It's nuanced. And then it's rehearsed. If it's a performance like I would do, it's also rehearsed for delivery a million times. All to toward the end of the audience feeling like, hey, he just walked out there and started talking. And he's so funny. And the story's so good. <laughs> you know, nobody else sees all of the, the work that's gone on in the background. So tell me about your wonderful program that you're teaching for Nita in October and what lawyers who sign up for it will get out of the experience. Well, what they will get is two days, two half days of working on case story development. And you can bring your own cases. This is a, a Nita course that I don't require a, uh, a, a, everybody to learn a case in advance. Now, there is one if you want to. But you can bring your own stuff, and it does not have to be jury litigation opening statements. It can be anything, because I can make I can help you make a story out of anything. I did a motion for um, an injunction last uh, last fall in Wyoming, so as dry as it gets, and we made that thing into a powerful narrative for a judge that one i mean we we it passed fantastic yeah so the, the in the in the course that i teach here i'm i encourage you to bring in your own stuff i do a lot of talking about storytelling the way we're doing it here with examples and stuff like that but you the participants 
will be doing exercises and will be working on your own storytelling and refinements the whole way through too. So it's like a semi-private lesson and you're workshopping the heck out of your own, your own presentations. So one of the things that people really love about the class, I hear it's almost like having office time that you know, you're getting CLE credit for potentially, and you're working on something you would have been working on anyway, but you've got you know, private specialized coaching the whole time. That two-day course in October, which is October 5th and 6th, is one of two courses that I do. You don't have to do both of them, but they kind of are linked. The other one is November 2nd and 3rd, and that's on presenting skills. So that's on the voice, the body, the facial expression, pausing, pacing, and all that that goes into making it live. And then I know that you also teach at the New Orleans program, trial program every spring. It's in New Orleans, and that is kind of an interesting program because it's got that unique track that's all about presentation and courtroom performance, and um, you're a member of that faculty too. Yes. There are a few NIDA programs that have that angle, but the, the New Orleans one is great. I've been doing it for 10 years. What you're learning is classic trial practice. I mean, it's, it's, they're going to go through witness examination. They're going to go through impeachment, introduction of evidence, openings, closings, the whole thing. Uh, Dominic Gianna, who's a litigation attorney with like 45 years experience, you know, uh, he's in charge of that thing. And he comes from a theater family. So the whole thing has a flair to it. Yeah, it's a great program. Um, I had Dominic on the podcast a few months ago, and if anyone is interested in hearing his insights on courtroom performance, I'll be sure to include a link in the show notes. So I've got uh, one last question, and it's my signature sign-off, which I've tweaked just a little bit for you because you're not an attorney. And it is, what case, whether present day or in the past, would you have liked to have been hired as a storytelling consultant on and why? Well, I really thought about this. And you know what case I would have loved to have been a part of is Metallica versus Napster. (laughs) Why? The classic from the, uh, I believe it was the late 90s. Um, This was when Napster, which was the first downloading of MP3s, sharing site for music first came around and metallica the great big heavy metal band said no you can't just give away our stuff for free with each other so it's just got interesting components to it and both sides i feel have a really strong case now metallica won but napster's side could have been I don't know exactly what they argue, but could have been, why is this any different than recording it on at the time? It would have been cassette tapes and sharing it with my friends. I mean, what's the difference? We've been doing that for years. So I would love to have gotten into like, how do you tell both sides of this story? You know, not to mention being a part of a super cool case. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Metallica because I literally was thinking about them yesterday. Um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a perfume freak. Um, I love Guerlain's perfumes. But about 20 years ago, Guerlain released a perfume called Metallica, and it is gorgeous. And uh, the band found out about it, and they were like, you know, this is causing brand confusion for us. And so they took Guerlain to court, and they won yet again. They, they've got, <laughs> I know, they, they hire great legal counsel. I cannot even believe that. 
uh, now that we're talking about it, I would also have loved to have been a part of the Led Zeppelin. It was a band called Spirit versus Led Zeppelin. And this band Spirit claims that Stairway to Heaven was their song because the first like 12 notes are the same as one of their songs. And they brought this thing all the way to court. Like I think there were two or three cases on this. And of course, Led Zeppelin kept winning because it's an insane claim. Yeah. <laughs> but. It's been really fun to talk to you. And I appreciate that you spent so much time talking about storytelling with us. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, David. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of May the Record Reflect, featuring David Mann. It was such a pleasure to bring his tips on brainstorming, storytelling, and writing to you, and I hope they light you up in whatever case you're working on. And if you'd like to learn more about working with David directly at one of his upcoming NIDA programs this fall, or independently as a client, please check out the show notes for all the links you need. Enjoy the rest of your summer, everyone, and I will catch you next month. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita, we are advocacy-enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.